At Maximus, we are focused on the future of federal government. We deliver mission-driven innovation at speed and scale, turning insights into impact. We are a top systems integrator and leading provider of transformative technology services, digitally enabled customer experiences, and clinical health services. We help agencies navigate obstacles and anticipate the unexpected by becoming more agile, empowered, effective, and ready for what lies ahead. We are Maximus, moving people forward. Learn more at Maximus.com federal. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. There will be those days what I will call career-defining events. You know, uh, Anthrax event with House Representatives in October 2001, obviously 9-11. Those are career-defining events because we basically had to find office space and network space for 3,000 people in a matter of seven days. And then, yeah, it was astonishing when people stepped up, you know, the, the, from, the, the, hey, we were going to have the, because the people, because right now we're going through election cycle, a new Congress is coming in. You imagine the world saying, oh, what, they can't do, they can't do legislative process. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. This past year saw governments continuing to accelerate and scale their digital initiatives. However, economic uncertainties, as well as continuing public health concerns, derailed some of this progress. Based on a recent survey, the top priorities of state and local government leaders in 2023 are digital transformation, legacy modernization, and addressing cybersecurity risks. However, competing expectations and a lack of understanding of the possibilities digital offers challenges their ability to establish a shared vision. So what are current CIOs thinking right now when they look to be successful in the coming year? Well, my guest today will be able to shed some light on that. Joining me is Nelson Moe. He recently served as the Chief Information Officer for the Commonwealth of Virginia and is now a Principal Advisor for Ironbow Technologies, working with state and local governments. Prior to joining the Commonwealth of Virginia, he served for three years as the CIO for the U.S. House of Representatives. In that position, he supported multiple national-level efforts, including the continuity of government in the wake of 9-11, and the anthrax attack on Congress in 2001. I'm looking forward to jumping into his brain a little bit to understand more about how CIOs will be approaching the coming year. Nelson, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you, Brian, for having me. Can you hear me okay before we get started? Is this good? Yes, I can hear you great. You sound, you sound really good. I am going to geek out a little bit on the, on the technology side, but before I do that, I noticed in your background that you used to work on submarines when you were in the Navy. Yeah. I've, I've just been fascinated with submarines, um, especially World War II uh, era submarines, but also um, the human side of living inside of a submarine. What is that like, being submerged under the, under the water, under the ocean for long periods of time? Well, I'll get to that in a second, but by just to know how I got there, I graduated from the United States Naval Academy in 1981 and assessed right into the submarine force. So I spent a good time in my career at sea in submarines. So as a, as a commissioned officer on attack submarines, I spent my time in attack submarines. They tend to be the smaller ones. 
and the crew uh, is all one crew. So you're, you're, you're basically, it's a very tight knit crew. So if I can tell your listeners, the submarine environment from my perspective is it's, first of all, it's a highly complex self-contained environment that is both home and work for about 120 crew members at any one time for months on end. So it is a, like a spaceship, but it's contained and there are no windows. So you're, you're basically in a, in a controlled, uh, highly, like I said, highly contained environment. But yeah, I, I never, felt, I never yeah. thought of it like a spaceship. I think that's yeah. a good point. Yeah. So, but it's, and, but it's, it is very cramped, you know, and so we'll get that in a minute, but that's, that's the, the understanding that is, that's, that it's a highly complex self-contained environment basically uh, of, uh, of a home for, for people. But I felt like I was part of uh, something of substantial power. I mean, yeah, the nuclear power plant, the piping systems, the hydraulics, air, the state-of-the-art sonar systems, computer systems, the West, weapon systems, and basically oxygen and food prep and, and uh, oxygen um, cleaning systems. It, 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 it's like a little, it was, like I said, a self-contained world, basically. That's what you should come back. It said for months on end, we would take all the food for a month that we would need for months, store it, and then, and then, and then work around it. There was also a feeling of, of that's that's the general environment for your listeners, Brian. There's a general feeling being something bigger than yourself, and and the importance of impact and reliance. That's the other word I'd like to leave your listeners: reliance and other other people as they relied on you for safety. A submarine is a ship of warship, as first and foremost. And submarines, modern submarines can operate for months on end all across the globe. I had a chance to be in a submarine all the way to the Pacific Ocean, Indian Ocean, and the Arctic Ocean all the way to the North Pole. And so the other thing I'd like to leave your listeners is that responsibility of this power comes at a young age. I was 25, barely able to rent a car, and I was basically the officer of the deck of a submerged submarine. And so qualifying in submarines in 1984 at a young age of 25 was very satisfying for me and a significant step in my career. So leading a group like that, obviously being being underwater, um, but also being charged with, I would imagine, um, high responsibility yep. mission situations, is that is that one of the things? And obviously serving is that one of the things that kind of drove you into government at a later age? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, it is that that feeling for want to be a part of of, of self service and, and serving my country. Absolutely, that's what drove me. To continue my career in government service uh, after I left the Navy in 1981, I had a short stint in some private, small private sector companies, a startup, and then I started working at the House of Representatives. But that is my overall why. When people have their whys, is basically uh, giving back to this nation. And and I mentioned at the top of this that you you served as CIO for the House of Representatives, but also more recently before you joined Ironbow, you were the CIO for the Commonwealth of Virginia. Yep. Um, I'm I'm curious, and I ask I ask CIOs, especially um, when when they come on the show, this question. But I want to get your vantage point. What were some of the challenges that you really faced? I know we see common patterns about that, but I'm always curious to know what really what really kept you up at night. Well, that, that's good. Uh, so I'm very very uh, blessed. That toward the end of my six and a half years of the Commonwealth CIO, I was had a really really great team. Um, I was able to sleep at night knowing full well. That they anything that came their way, both them and their direct reports are able to handle it. Quick shout out to the deputies I had. First of all, the Chief Information Security Officer, Mike Watson, Dan Wolf, the Chief Administrative Officer, and my Chief of Staff, and Joan Ozevic at the time, the Chief Operating Officer. They, at the end of my last three years of my career, they were able to handle it all the way through the pandemic, all the way through um, uh, the, the optimizing our, our platforms. They did it. At the beginning of my career, 
there was some major challenges. This goes back to 2015. We were transitioning from a single supplier to a large supplier model and setting up a new contract structure and, and services structure that I lost some sleep during those nights. <laughs> but but uh, it was primarily setting up uh, both uh, services and, uh, and, and, and like I said, contractual arrangements with separate suppliers to serve the 65 agencies of Virginia and the 55,000 um, state employees. I, you mentioned the pandemic. I'm guessing, I'm guessing that period of time was certainly something that kept you up at night. I know it. So yeah. I, I live in Virginia yeah. and I know we would regularly be tuning in to see what uh, Governor Northam at the time would be communicating. And you obviously were tasked with managing a lot of this government, uh, government information. Um, what did, what did your approach to the pandemic really teach you? How did that really shape really how you approached what you were doing yeah. as CIO after, or a, as the pandemic matured and where you are now as you're helping uh, state and local governments at Ironbow? Yeah, yeah, good question. So the first thing, you know, the pandemic, what it does, it it, it forced uh, uh, state and local governments across the nation, starting in the West Coast, all the way to the East Coast, when the, when, the, when the pandemic started, to focus on accelerating and taking advantage of digital transformation. They basically had to provide services at speed and scale to citizens and their own staff remotely. And they had to, instead of people coming in and working on paper processes, they had to shift all those to remote processes. So that was the big thing. And so there was a, a focus of, of innovation and, and investment at that level. And for Virginia, one of the things we did is we we had to v- dramatically increase our ability to support remote work uh, from roughly five, th- roughly 3,000 concurrent users to over th- over 15 and 20,000. So we had seven times, we had to increase our, our capacity for remote, remote work in a very short period of time, like two or three weeks to seven times. And that investment rollout of services was impressive. So that's what we learned from the approach initially, the pandemic. And going forward, we've realized that some of these services, we're going to continue with these things, the digital transformation, and and to learn from that uh, what we can always support. For example, Department of Motor Vehicles in Virginia has shifted a lot of their services to remote work. Department of Corrections, same thing. So we, we at, when I was state uh, state CIO, we we adjusted to the business outcomes of those agencies and adjusted the technology approaches to meet that. Uh, so let me ask you this too: in in that role, how do you make that shift from almost survival mode into strategic? mode? How do you not only build a culture around that, but really how do you make the decision to shift and say, okay, guys, we've, we've kept this foundation strong, right? We're ready to, we we can sustain. Now let's look strategically on, on where we can grow, where we can do better now for the Commonwealth. See, and that's where the beauty of the model we had in Virginia, where I was able to do that. My direct reports handled the administration, uh, the, the human resources, the hiring, the finances, the CISO, the, the, the cybersecurity of efforts and the operation efforts. And I was able to look at the more longer term strategic efforts with the, the, the administration, the cabinet and the agency had to say, hey, where do we want to be? And one of the examples is that we realized we need to shift to a different type of way of, of, of developing applications to move more of a low code approach. And I was able to do that. So how do you do it is is have the, the time and energy uh, and a focus and have a, an organizational structure allows you to do that. That was one. And for me, it was just trying to communicate and reaching out to my, my, my peers as the agency heads to say, all right, we're going, this looks like the wave of the future. Okay, how can we best uh, uh, adapt uh, the, the services structure and the application structure to meet that? So that was, it is highly collaborative. The other wing for how, Brian, for your listeners, is we had established 
we call them governance forums, but forums where uh, agency leaders from both technical and business would get together with us and say, hey, this is where we want to go. And Virginia's consolidation, we had to be able to manage it both at enterprise level and then individual agency level. So those particular efforts had to be well thought out. I think I think that's a, just, a, just to pull something out there. One of the things that I've learned is I think what separates good leaders from great leaders is their ability to listen not not just not just tell people and communicate but really listen and understand what the needs are of the organization what the needs are of the people and i think the more you can do that the more you can then build strategies to what will actually make a difference versus what you think will make a difference uh one i think one of the paradigms i mean in talking about shifting from survival to strategic view uh, I think one of the big paradigms that came out of the pandemic was this focus on customer experience. Yeah. There's the pivot to everything digital, which forced everything to be transacted digitally. Yep. And the now that we're all used to digital interactions, especially with government, now strategically, I think leaders are saying, okay, how can we make this better? How can we make this more more delightful for the citizens? Um, I'm curious to know what was your approach to CX during during your time in that role. Yeah, so Brian, for your listeners, one of the things that you should understand the model we had at Virginia from a customer from a citizen customer experience. We want to focus on that. That was primarily up to the responsibility of the individual agency heads. For example, Department of Social Services, Department of Corrections, Department of Transportation, Department of Motor Vehicles, Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. They had the citizen experience, and they would adjust their applications. Uh, uh, my select is the application used for DMV and how when people come in to get their driver's license, how to best adapt to the citizen customer experience. And so my job as the centralized CIO was to help those particular agencies with the, with the, the contract structures, being able to buy things from suppliers and also the underlying infrastructure, uh, internet, email, mainframe, uh, printing, end user support, supply, um, the, desk, the desktop support and uh, cybersecurity and uh, and data center and, and networking make sure all those supported that application for citizen experiences so i had more of a partnership customer experience with the agency heads the 65 of them and then they had the citizen experience and my job was to say what about this what about that have you tried this and suggest that but the application layer and data layer responsibilities are at the individual individual agency head that it makes total sense but i think one of the things that that people often in my opinion, kind of misconstrue around CX is it's not just UX, right? The foundational layers, which you were talking about, which you were helping orchestrate in my, in my view is really the engine that makes a lot of that, a lot of that come to fruition, yeah. taking a look at interoperability, right? How are the systems yeah. talking to each other? It's that flow of information, flow of data in, in terms of how you approach that, really orchestrating it. Were there any things that you, that you found to be uh, a valuable focus, anything that, that you found patterns across that, that, and also in collaboration with other state level CIOs that you guys were able to share. Yeah. One of the things for your listeners that, that Virginia is very good at has been for, even before I got there was being able to uh, partner with other states, both on East coast and across the nation. There's a national association of state CIOs of which I was, was a member and I'm an iron bow is a member now as a corporate member, but as a, as an individual member, that's a great sharing. There's, your listeners should realize there's a great sharing environment there for citizen experiences and what what works. And we're all trying to solve the same kind of problems across the nation. So that's a good example of 
citizen customer experience, and then of course the, the I call the partner customers at the agencies, how we best solve them from a digital experience perspective. I, I the focus that we also use is customer success, not just service, because we want them to just be moved from a transactional approach to much more of a partnership. Hey, where do you want to be from a strategic approach going forward in the next budget cycle, next horizon cycle for the two to four years going out as part of the overall strategic plan? So that's for your listeners is those things are all shared and connected. And um, you know, from a customer experience perspective, it's, it's a constant um, effort to make sure we are focusing on, hey, how can we make things more cost effective, more secure, and more resilient going forward? One of the one of the terms you used in there uh, yeah. was talking about security, right? The foundational piece of it. When you have so many different systems connected, right? It just widens that attack vector, um, and that's a big responsibility for someone like you um, in that position. Um, so as that's changing, new threats are arriving. We have old threats that are evolving, um, and all of these vulnerabilities. I mean, it's uh, we mentioned at the top of this things that keep you up at night. I'd have to imagine that's something that that was kind of top of your mind. Um, and I think the idea around cybersecurity has really evolved from this kind of total defense type of approach to layered defense to cyber resiliency, kind of based on the analysis that we've seen um, and the type of type of risk you're willing to take, right? What are those what are those risk profiles look like? Um, I know one way to approach this is through outcome based cyber. So Talk to me a little bit about this concept yeah. uh, and how you see this being different from how security has previously been handled. Yeah, thank you for that question. So uh, uh, cybersecurity and the ability to protect uh, and uh, provide uh, um, uh, uh, protect uh, citizens' uh, outcomes is top of mind for every single CIO, every single governor uh, and going forward. It's, it's, it's been around for a long time. And you see it more and more in the news with ransomware attacks across the nation. So... So I'll use the hockey analogy and the hockey metaphor. Cybersecurity is a, our goal uh, at Virginia and then goal at my company now is to skate where the puck is going to be, skate where it's going to be. And that we believe that from a cyber resilience perspective, because, you know, as the, you realize the, the, at the, as the individuals that are trying to disrupt get more available, you or more, more capable, pardon me, what you do is you make sure that, okay, assume you're going to get a flat tire. How do you recover from that? And so um, I'd like to credit my my my, uh, my my current supervisor and former chief operating officer John Ozvik for what I call his cyber resilience approach. And more and more states are are going to this whole of state effort of identifying primary outcomes first and working backward to the actual efforts to get it done. And so that's that that's it. So what identify critical identify the critical services you want to do, whether it's online uh, services, criti- critical infrastructure, public safety. And the key is to protect the data, protect the application, and then protect the outcome from a business perspective. So the resiliency strategy is primarily based on three uh, three step processes. You, you come up with a holistic assessment, then you do you identify a cross functional team, and then you come up with a roadmap to implement it. Um, this approach is based on IT services being able to take a hit and then keep on moving and recover quickly. That's the resilience approach. And it's not just cybersecurity efforts, but you focus on that and get the, they get the uh, investments figured out as part of the outcome based and your risk profile. Yeah, I would say, I mean, I think one of the things that, especially from a security perspective, that in my opinion, I'd love to get your thoughts on it. I mean, first of all, is security has sort of inhibited that 
evolution into the cloud for for governments. I think I think governments might be further along had they made that jump yeah. sooner. And I think part of that, obviously, security used to top every single list. I know it's gone down the list a little bit as things like FedRAMP and StateRAMP have evolved and given you a little bit more peace of mind. But now we're you talked about outcomes base, and it made me think. I mean, we're in this world of everything as a service, right? Does that does that push that that security piece back to the top of the list as you're kind of highly yeah. focused on these anything as a service type of applications? Yeah, it, it's in the mix, Brian. Uh, but the, we, we always focus on what's your outcome first because security for security purposes, if you if you're totally risk adverse, then what happens is depending on where you are in your in your service vertical, then your ability to adopt and adapt uh, new technologies you, may be. Uh, may may be worse than worse than the actual steps you're taking here. You, you get so far behind, nobody uses you. You may be secure, but nobody uses you. You can't you can't serve your citizens. You can't get new services out there in time. People say, "Well, I'm not using that because it's too out of date." And so there's that balance and incentivization to come back and say, "How do we address the the balance between uh, cybersecurity posture, being able to take some risk and hits, and have you know the ability to recover and protect protect the outcome." And then um, versus uh, a, a total uh, the a services model where there is no security, so there is that balance. So yeah, if you have it one way, the risk there's no risk, no no efforts going on. I mean, there's total risk. Then you just you're just not going to have any type of new services, and eventually, um, you'll your outcomes will fail. Being on the outside now, kind of looking back in. Do you think there there might have been things that um, you could have done or that governments could be doing to evolve that faster? Or w- what do you think beyond security has been some of the uh, some of the pieces that have held governments back from just jumping in two feet into the cloud? Oh, good, uh, good question. So uh, part of it is is that uh, the, the from this is from my perspective. From my understanding of it, uh, and Virginia's been in the cloud for a number of years now, uh, and uh, both cloud, both in a compute perspective, also software as a service, uh, infrastructure and platform as a service. And so, from my perspective and the takeaway for your listeners is, it, from, it is not a regulated industry. It is not like food and drug. It's not like uh, it's not like a, a FAA. It is is not like the SEC. It is not a regulated industry, and so the contracting officer. And the cybersecurity officer have to take a look at every single contract and terms and conditions to make sure they're protected and they make sure they meet their standards. Now, don't don't get me wrong. Cloud companies want to do the right job, but it, it's incumbent upon the customer. Having been the, the the IT procurement officer for the Commonwealth of Virginia in this area, I can't tell you the number of times I look at a contract and said, "We're not signing up for that. That is, that, <laughs> I, I can't. There's no way this is defendable from a risk perspective to the Commonwealth. Redo it." And so since it's unregulated, that would be part of the reason of it. And so at having honest conversations with your suppliers say, yeah, this is the risk we will take. This is the responsibility and resources arrangement we want to sign up for. That would be, the, getting back to your question, the barrier that, 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 that uh, governments haven't had a chance to jump through. I was willing to go down that path. One of the common themes that I've seen as, as leaders like yourself and others have, have come on the show, um, one of the questions that I've asked them is kind of what advice would you have towards the industry uh, in terms of in terms of working with governments? And the answer that I get almost nine times out of ten, probably ninety nine times out of a hundred, 
is just to be partners, understand our challenges, look to be a partner, don't just look to be a, a transactional vendor and own our problems with us, kind of help us navigate these things um, from a strategic perspective. Would you say that's that's pretty spot on? That would, coming from where I, from where I was, yes, the phrase we used, we had that from the, when I was on the government side was that our arrangements, contractual and relationship with the suppliers had to be win-win or no deal. It had to be win-win. We, and we had to acknowledge, yeah, profit is not an ugly word. They have to make a profit. They want to stand it because if they don't make it a profit, then they will move away or they will kill, kill or cure the account. And so to get the outcome you need, which is services to the citizens, services that there has to be that win-win arrangement so that, they, that they're comfortable. It, it certainly don't have a, a, a blowout margin of, 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 of a profit, but there has to be enough interest incentivization for them to do the work and separately to partner going forward with the overall thing. So when bumps are happening there, they will they will see you through it. We saw that with the suppliers that helped us through the pandemic. And I saw it with the suppliers that helped us through uh, 9-11 and the anthrax events of the House of Representatives back in 2000. So now in your role at Ironbow, knowing kind of what you know now, um, wanting to not only be a strategic partner for the Commonwealth of Virginia, other state and local uh, municipalities. How do you help um, your organization and these other government organizations create these win-win scenarios? Yeah. So for me, it is it, I my role now is to essentially ex- to be a sounding board and sometimes explain the motivations and the hurdles that that's that uh, public sector employees, public sector entities have specifically at state level. And there are a lot of the governance models, the checks and balances are there for a reason to make sure that the taxpayer monies are spent wisely and for an enduring effort. And so my role is say, when, when you present this particular effort, you know, the first thing you want to do is before you come up with any solution, first of all, do the homework and understand the environment and the challenges that the, that the entity have. It could be a city, it could be a state, it could be a, a higher education thing. What are they trying to do? In the, in the near term, long term, you know, what are their uh, uh, what are their major focuses? We call them outcomes. Hey, I want this. I want this. I want this. It could be policy. It could be financial. It could be market share. So it could be effort. So what do we want to do to get done? Get this done. And then once you do that work, uh, once you do that work, then you backwards out and say, okay, with these outcomes, then there we have either a technical technology approach or some thought leadership advice we can give you. Or a, we can point you in the direction. Hey, it's not our wheelhouse, but these guys can help. So that's the kind of partnership that that, that that's in front of profits for for at least Ironbow. That's important to us. That will lend lend itself to longer term relationships and a better win win relationship and environment with the, the the public sector. I like that a lot. I mean, the other I like that you use the word outcome in there. We talked about outcome based cyber, but I think even beyond cybersecurity, I mean, every single area that government is focusing more and more government is driving towards outcomes, right? There, I think there has been a long legacy of activity-focused outcomes, and now they're looking for value-based outcomes. So being that partner that can help them drive that value um, and build strategies on top of, to me, uh, is absolutely uh, the best way to approach some of these things. Uh, obviously, you've had uh, a long career um, not only in public service, now you're all also in the private sector, but you the private sector before. Um, we talked about your time uh, in the Navy. Tell me tell me just a couple things that you've picked up over your career that has really helped. It's kind of 
kind of stayed with you, right? There, there's moments in time that I think something will always pop into my head and I'll remember yep. such and such scenario. And it's something that I see over yep. and over and over again. And I just always have that in my head. Are there things like that for you that you continue to kind of fall back on? Yeah. Yeah. So, so for me, for the people that are in, in their mid careers or starting their careers up, there will be those days what I will call career defining events, you know, uh, anthrax event with house representatives in October, 2001, obviously nine 11, those are career defining events. Cause we basically had to find, office space and network space for 3000 people in a matter of seven days. And then, yeah, it was astonishing when people stepped up, you know, the, from, from the, Hey, we were going to have the, because the people, because right now we're going through election cycle, a new Congress is coming and you imagine the world saying what they can't do. They can't do legislative process. So those occur events. So getting back to question and enduring things is those will happen and have the faith and courage that you will be able to work through them. Does that make sense? The suppliers we had at the time stepped up to help us with Cisco and Verizon and Dell and they and HP and they came through and, and provided us equipment that we were able to set up these new systems. My point is that the, the suppliers were there to help us partner in the outcome of getting the Congress back up very quickly so we could do the people's business of the House representatives, and of course on the Senate side too, but I was on the House side. And I so that's, that's a really good example where I think that the relationship between government and the private sector, yeah. we saw this honestly, and, and you yeah. can, you can probably give firsthand knowledge here. You saw this so much during the pandemic yeah. where oh, yeah. as soon as this happened, you yeah. uh, governments, governments were struggling and it seemed like vendors were, were really at that point yeah. becoming tree partners, jumping in yeah. and saying, Hey, what can we do to help at this moment in time? Yeah, that's a, that was my next example. And so in March of 2020, it, 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 what happened is those suppliers we had the Commonwealth and the framework had allowed them to specifically lean in and help us with new services. We, we roll out new uh, uh, edge, edge services. I, I'd be shameless plug for Zscaler. Cisco helped us. Ironbow helped us because everybody in the planet wanted that laptops and desktops. Ironbow stepped up and provided it to the Commonwealth. Went out of their way, even though there was supply chain issues all over the world. Like we, we, we adjusted on the fly our, our, our remote access uh, work with, with uh, Cisco VPN and uh, credit the, the operating and the cyber, cyber guys, uh, John and Mike, to, to facilitate that in rapid fashion. So we did not. The point here is for your listeners is that because the technology was moved at, at fast pace, the business outcomes of the 65 agencies were not impacted. So they were able to, you know, once they figure out what they want to do, remote work home or whatever, we were able to support that. So they all leaned in. Same thing with uh, the, the, the supplier for our integrator and so on. So it really was impressive. Okay. So that's the partnership you want. Uh, that's one thing I learned. Uh, so those will happen to get the other one. The other one is leadership. Uh, the other thing you learned about Brian is leadership. People will gravitate to, to individuals and organizations that have a vision to win. That's how they gravitate. And then being able to delegate to the people. I was, I, I was very happy. I was able to delegate to John and Mike and Dan and, and, and say, hey, this, these outcomes we want, go work together and get it done. So, and people will gravitate to that ownership. They want to own it. They want to have that ownership and say, hey, it's going to be tough, but you get to put it on your resume when you're all done. And so that was what I learned. And then finally, getting back to the, the now that I've worked on both sides of the, uh, the coin here for public and private, you know, work to a win-win. I've said it before, but it has to be win-win or no deal because you don't want to have win-lose win because that is just nasty. Okay. So, so as we start to wind this conversation down, um, I would love to get your view on kind of the horizon moving forward. What's, sure. what's one of the biggest challenges? Or, or multiple challenges that you really see 
this industry facing? When I say industry, I mean like the yeah. government technology space. Where, where do you see the biggest challenge, the biggest hurdle? Well, the biggest hurdles you've seen in the industry across both and public-private is obviously workforce, development workforce, uh, workforce engagement. Um, uh, there's always a lack of trying to get more talent here. Uh, that's one thing. Obviously, cybersecurity attacks, cybersecurity, those are the two big ones. Uh, I'm probably uh, one of the, the I, mean, I don't know if I'm going to be the most senior person you have on your podcast, but I, I graduated from college before you had to wear seat belts, just to put things in perspective. <laughs> And so at least at the federal level. So uh, but for me, having lived through inflation in the early 80s, when mortgage rates were 16 and a half per 16 and a half percent in September of 81, and then seeing it for over 10 percent for the next decade, you know, that, that, that people I think our listeners may not have seen that. And then how it how it affects things, both investments, hiring, um, uh, states like Virginia have a AAA bond rating. They're going to have to think about how that affects them if they, from an inflation perspective. And so I think that's ins- that insidious effort of inflation will be a challenge, I think, in addition to workforce and cyber. That's one because it affects every single decision you're going to make going forward. Makes a lot of sense. Nelson, I've really appreciated the time today. Um, a lot of really insights into multiple different topics. But as we close out, do you have any final thoughts you want to leave with the listeners? Yeah, first of all, thank you for your time, Brian. Thank you for your listeners. But my message to my staff and my things is be optimistic. Focus on the opportunities. It can be done. And as a Veterans Day was last week, you know, as a veteran, I firmly believe we live in the greatest nation on earth. Excellent. Nelson, again, thank you so much for your time. You're quite welcome. Thank you for having me. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to govexec.com backslash podcast wherever you access yours. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittister AB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.